and welcome to Outside Inside Radio. I'm Kathy Foley-Meyer, your host, and I'm very happy today to be here with Amir Whitaker. He is the Senior Policy Counsel for the ACLU. He's also the founder of Project Knucklehead and an artist in many different mediums. Welcome, Amir, to the program. Thanks for having me, Kathy. It's great to join you all. Yeah. So let's start out by talking about Project Knucklehead. I'm curious how your own experience with the justice system influenced the founding of Project Knucklehead, and if you can just explain for our audience exactly what it is. Sure. So Project Knucklehead is a nonprofit that started 10 years ago in Miami while I was in Florida working in the juvenile courthouse, seeing lots of youth come in and out of the system, and sometimes seeing the parents and guardians plea and cry to the judges and tell them that their child doesn't need a cage necessarily doesn't need so much punishment and retribution, but maybe a positive outlet, mentoring and just different services and programs that would allow them to use their creative energy, you know, and and I always say creative energy plus no creative outlet is a recipe for a disaster. You know, when you have those two things combined, whether it's a young or older person, you know, when you have energy to create and do and explore and your community, your school, your settings don't allow for that, then get in creative trouble sometimes. So seeing that 10 years ago, I I just actually approached one of the programs where the youth were court ordered to, where this program was provided their school and and mental health services and different things. I just approached them and said, hey, can I come and facilitate some workshops for the youth? And they agreed. And first I started out bringing some of my local musician friends in Miami and local artists from tattoo artists to fashion designers and different folks to expose the young people to different forms of creativity because the the school or the institution itself had no formal music program, no formal art program. They actually didn't even have a library until we started bringing books there and compiling them. Wow. Yeah. So very much the the staff and the culture of the institution was one of punishment, right? It was like these children don't deserve this. They made a mistake. They did a crime and we should punish them. And I know for myself personally, as one of those youth who didn't have a lot of creative outlets, right? I got into trouble. I myself, I'm a musician today. It's a way that brings in income to me. It's how I connect with friends, how I connect with the world and culture. But I wasn't provided any music instruction in high school, actually throughout school at all. Where I grew up in New Jersey, we didn't have those opportunities. Yeah, I didn't have all the outlets that I have today and didn't have the ways to process everything from emotions to other feelings that I do through art and music and creativity. And I'm known as Dr. Knucklehead by some. That's how I was introduced to you. We should have Dr. Knucklehead on. And I was like, who's that? Yeah. So the name comes from some of my behavior in earlier years. I was arrested several times. At one point I was selling drugs. It was a crime of poverty. But one thing that did come from the drugs was I was able to purchase my first guitar, my first instrument. My father did introduce me to DJing years earlier where he had some turntables and was showing me some of the stuff, but I wasn't able to actually get my own instruments until I was selling drugs. And I do feel it's the responsibility of our public education system, of our social service system, to provide youth and adolescents with opportunities like this, because that's how you experience culture and you connect with each other. Exactly. But sometimes arts programs are the first to get cut. Exactly. You know, when schools are looking to trim the budget, arts programs are usually the first to go because they're not valued in the same way. Exactly. Art is looked at as not a quote unquote core subject like math and English, even though art includes math and English and science. 
you right. know, and all the disciplines on top of the social, emotional and healing components of it. And also we know as artists, you know, the economy, right? You always hear about the starving artist and what are you going to do with your, your art degree or your art practice? Because the world doesn't value artists as much as they should, even though they value art and they exploit our art, but we're not valued right. at the same way in arts and school. You know, I was never given a music class, which might have prevented me from dropping out of school because I actually did drop out of school at one point and felt like I wasn't engaged enough and not motivated enough. So Project Knucklehead, we started that in 2012 right. in Miami. And one of the best things I've ever heard is from one of our students talking about how this is the reason why he loved being in the program, the whole institution, which was a carceral institution. Then even when we were working within the school program, one of the students shared like, I love coming here for this. And he loved going home and talking to his parents about it and that sort of thing. So we know the power of art. If you think of the first thing you learned in school, right, with the ABCs, that's literally a song right. because art is magic. <laughs> you know, it's using pitch. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, the tap injury, you know. Yeah. And when you think about the first things that you did, for me, it was you make that impression in clay with your hand and you bring it home to your mom. Mm -hmm. Or I remember I made a mug because we had where I grew up was semi-fancy. So someone come in to show us she had a pottery wheel and we made our own cups, which I think, I think my mother still has. It's a very sad cup, but <laughs> obviously it yeah. No, it means a lot. Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit more specifically about what your program actually does in terms of the classes and how that works? Absolutely. So we started in Miami first doing visiting workshops. Right. It's coming, throwing their therapeutic sessions, you know, up to 75 minutes facilitating. And we were blessed to have an actual music therapist in our Miami program, a trained, certified, you know, music therapist who graduated from the University of Miami. And she was working with us when she was a student there. Natalie, shout out to Natalie. Her practice actually influenced a lot of what we do and how we connect and the way we use healing through music. But we started by doing visiting workshops and the staff noticed us lugging a lot of equipment, sometimes even drum sets amps or art stuff and different things. And after about three or four months, they said, hey, you all want right. like a designated space, <laughs> kind of like a studio or a classroom. And we said, we'd love to not have to carry a seven piece drum set every time, you know, and, and different things. And so I think that was when it evolved even more when we were given that space. It grew into something that the students could see. And then we started doing things like murals with the students where they could beautify the campus and take pride in it and then view it as something they helped build as right. opposed to, you know, maybe tagging the wall and just viewing it as an institution that's just holding them, but they're not a part of. Because art creates community, right? When you do something together and then their parents come and see it, they, they feel like that is truly their institution, their school. Yeah. And it must be exciting for you to watch that growth take place where people are seeing themselves in a new way and they're recreating themselves in a way through creativity. Absolutely. I always say art is how you discover your soul. Art is how you discover who you are right? And what your soul looks like, sounds like, feels like. And when you deprive people, communities, and students of art, you're depriving them of that chance to of self-exploration. So I always say it's the right to the soul. When we fight for art, we're fighting for the soul. No, I love that. So I'm curious in this age, you know, where we have a pushback against even the idea that systemic racism and structural racism that criminalize poverty even exists, not only for adults, but also for juveniles. How do you keep going in the face of the pushback? Right. 
we just have to be examples and art can help and heal a lot. Right. But it, we know it's not the antidote to just end oppression, um, you know, exploitation, white supremacy and different right. things. I learned that the hard way. I think I was a bit naive when I first started 10 years ago or one of our prize students who got him his first piano. And in a few months, he was playing some Beethoven pieces and became really talented. He loved like Coldplay right. and pop music and he would play that and spend hours playing his piano and formerly incarcerated, he was in a, a much better place, right? Right. But then he became unhoused, became homeless and was sleeping in the park and then was arrested for sleeping in the park. Right. And the mm -hmm. way programs sometimes measure success or whether you had an impact is, you know, recidivism rates, right? On whether the, the person, quote unquote, reoffends or is put back system. So this student, I, I would always talk about as our prize student, but then he got rearrested. So he was quote no longer right. our prize student but it's it's the truth and the honesty that even when you empower someone right. with art and opportunities it still cannot undo the systems but the good news is he shared even while he was incarcerated he was connecting through music writing songs that was how he was able to, to get through and then when he came home it was part of his healing process so that's what we're helping to provide people with yeah that's something we talk a lot about here the healing power of art and it is truly powerful. It can't protect you against everything, but you can always reach for it to bring you out of where you are. So we're not recording this visually, but I notice you have a line of guitars on the wall. I see two acoustics and two electrics. Is the first guitar you bought one of those on the wall? Uh, no, that one's still in Jersey. I have guitars all over the country, <laughs> living in four states. You know, my parents have some guitars. Um, but no, that it was a cherry red Stratocaster that I got from New Jersey, and that, that's the uh, actually that's in Miami. One of the first guitars that I left in the institution was my first guitar, so it's now able to to be that first that bridge for other students as well. I love that. Well, it's kind of like you're leaving guitars all over the country. It's like you're creating home spaces for yourself. Yeah, exactly. So it's like Johnny Appleseed with the guitars. Right, exactly. Marking your space with music. So I want to talk a little bit about your own art practice and your journey to that. So is there a primary form of creative expression or do you just kind of go back and forth between a whole bunch of different mediums? It's interesting. So I consider myself a creative generally, mm -hmm. and I prefer that over artists. Okay. Just because like I express myself through different ways. Right. And I think sometimes artist term, I mean, I embrace it and I'm called an artist, but I'm a human rights lawyer. That's that's what I am. Right. That That's how I pay my bills. <laughs> and um... Right. But does how you pay your bills define you? Maybe it doesn't. Exactly. That is such a key point. And I think we really need to tell young people that we need to tell students that, you know, even when they're choosing majors, yes. right? you don't have to go for the check, go for your happiness. And something my father told me, actually, he told me this like six years ago when I was 33. And I was just like, wow. Right. <laughs> but he said being a lawyer was always my plan B. <laughs> he said, you know, that was always something on top or just in case the, the art didn't work. And I was just like, wow, I, I went through three years, $100,000 in law school and just all all of this other stuff for a plan B that's extreme. But as my life plays out, I do see that it, it's, it never was the primary part of who I am because, you know, my father, he knows he's a musician and he gave this to me at a very early age. And I think, yeah, my yes. core part of my identity is a creative person. And I think music is how I connect. It's the primary form. Like 
I was thinking the past few times that I actually cried was through the process of making music. It just moved me to a point where I had tears mm -hmm. in my eyes. But my first love through art will always be drawing and visual art. Right. I was that student getting in trouble in school for doodling with my teachers unable to see that it was actually me regulating hyperactivity or anxiety and other stuff, right? I was still paying attention and, you know, I was just exploring myself. And actually in my sixth grade yearbook, they asked all of us, what did we want to be when we grew up? And that was mm -hmm. the first thing I still remember. I put cartoonists, you know, I wanted to, to draw cartoons until I found out you have to draw like so many images over and over to animate or you used to at least. Right. <laughs> and I was just like, well, that, that doesn't seem as fun, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you could do graphic novels. Exactly. You know? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And then, so my creativity evolved you know, as a late teenager, I, I was introduced to music, but I also started doing fashion in my early 20s as well. And now we have just different, as part of Project Knucklehead, we have different fashion lines. We have some of our products in stores around the world. And actually this Saturday in Los Angeles, where we're, we're going to be featured in the gallery, just our fashion. Oh, yeah. That and is awesome. Which gallery? It's going to be in the William Grant Steel Center, which is in Mid-City, oh, yeah. Los Angeles, starting October 1st. And it's going to be there all month until November. And we have, for example, we do different dashikis. We do different patterns. Fashion is an extension of visual art and graphic design. But also fashion itself is like another form of freedom, like the way you express yourself. Yes. When you put your shield on, you know, um, it's the way you want to be perceived by the world. It's also the way you perceive yourself. And I think it's another form of freedom, fashion. So I'm doing a lot with fashion nowadays as well. Yeah, I wanted to talk about one of your pieces that I saw online. It's the healing justice is love and liberation. And it's a graphic. There are very large words, but there are also images mm -hmm. of people that are input into the word love. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's like big bubble letters, kind of old school hip hop style, large enough so I can actually put people in them because this art was commissioned by a national project called Four Freedoms, which looked at system impacted people. Right. Um, looked at people who were doing liberation work. Right. And asked them to share their version of justice. So it's called Another Justice as well. And, and it's a great project for freedoms with um, artists all over the world. Mm -hmm. And they asked me to create this artwork that would be featured on billboards in Miami and Los Angeles. Actually, that that's still up in Los Angeles and on a billboard in Lamert Park. And yeah, Healing Justice is what I focused on, but I wanted to put those words out there big, especially love. Mm -hmm. So it says healing justice is love and yeah. love is taking up half of the actual billboard. It's, it's like 20 feet long. Exactly. It's the biggest word on the billboard. There's mm -hmm. just to describe it for our audience. There's like a somebody who looks like a, a king or somebody sitting at the top and this river that flows down between the two sections of words. Yeah. That's a Obatala who's a deity that represents consciousness and he's at the uh, top of a mountain because throughout the piece there are actually nine different afro deities or orisha in there and they relate art and healing so i wanted to honor them as well exactly that is really beautiful and vibrant yeah. and if you don't mind we'll post a link to your page and so we'll have it on there because it's really really striking please do yeah and i'll say some of the people in the the love yeah for example fanny lou hamer 
who said she's sick and tired of being yes. sick and tired, you know, and that's a form of healing justice or, or a proclamation of the need for healing justice, right? Because doing this freedom work takes a lot of work. <laughs> um, right. And a lot of energy from you personally. Oh, yeah. Doing that kind of work. Oh, yeah. And those familiar with the story of Fannie Lou Hamer know she in some ways worked herself to death. You know, she was a really hard freedom fighter. And healing justice is this concept I wanted to just help educate people more on the fact that we even throughout the process of creating justice, we have to center our healing and we have to take that time to nurture ourselves. Yes. Yeah. And so how do you do that? How do you do that personally when you've been firing on all pistons and then you reach that point where you're like, okay, I feel like I'm giving, but I'm also maybe pulling from a well that's pretty empty. So how do you fill yourself back up? Two ways. The primary way, and this is why we we do this through Project Knucklehead, is through art. (laughs) You know, like I remember I've had some days at work Mm -hmm. at the ACLU. I remember one day it was just so bad or so difficult that I just went home after three hours and just played guitar. And it's a privilege that I could Mm -hmm. do that. You know, I know some people in different jobs and careers wouldn't have that flexibility. Mm -hmm. And even people in in my office, if they didn't have the same supervisors or on the same team, didn't have that same luxury. But also for me, it's a it's (laughs) non-negotiable, you know, because I'm not going to work myself to death. I'm going to try my hardest not to. And I will put my Mm -hmm. foot down because I noticed doing this work, it will take all that you're willing to give. You know, you mentioned the well, it's like just going more and more. You can pour and keep pouring and it will seem like you're barely making a dent sometimes and that you can just do so much more. But you have the responsibility to yourself to stop and give yourself that time to heal. And so I do that through art. And another way is just through unplugging. Like sometimes I literally tell people I have to explain like I have weekends. I don't have weekends sometimes where it's just like I'm so overwhelmed throughout life sometimes and just with so many requests and so many questions, so many emails, so many outreach that I just have to not see anybody. Right. It's like I have to recharge in, in the dark for a bit so I can hear myself think. Because if, if you're yeah. constantly around people requesting things or stimulation, or if you're not able to hear yourself think, you might not be able to arrive to different thoughts and places. Yes. Um So that's really important and healing for me. Gotcha. Now I hear you and I'm the same way. I totally get it. So are there visual artists or other creative people that you see as your role models? Oh, absolutely. Going back to the Black Panthers, Emery Douglas. Yeah, I've met Emery. He's an amazing artist. Amazing artist. And activist. Right. Artivist, right? That one of the original artivists. And I think the way some of his visuals stick with you. Oh yeah. One of my favorite and most famous creations of art is this graphic. Actually, I have it right here. I can show you. It said it just says free the youth. I've given out over a thousand stickers with it and on a lot of t-shirts and hoodies that we've shared or sold. Oh yeah. And it's basically an American flag with bars behind it and the, the yeah. stars instead of stars and stripes, you see like bars and see people breaking free from it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You see two hands on the bars, but also the flag is kind of exploded and there are people who are freeing from it. Yeah, exactly. So it represents liberation. And I remember I was in Hawaii, which is, you know, a lot of military people there. And I got a few stares at my shirt and stares of like people who didn't like the design and basically felt that I was defacing a flag. Yeah. And I was happy to entertain that conversation and say, well, free the youth. What What do you think I'm saying? And what does America do? Are we really free? And, you know, 
force them to think as military right. veterans who think they're defending freedom, how we actually incarcerate more people than right. any other country. And I think Emory Douglas did that through his art, just forced questions, made people uncomfortable. You know, yeah. some of the stuff he would do with pigs, um, for example, mm-hmm. um, really famous and forced conversations. Yeah. He also portrayed women in a way like as powerful mm-hmm. beings that I feel like we didn't always get right. in the graphic arts. So very grateful for mm-hmm. him for that. So anybody else? Oh, yeah. I mean, of course, new people like or current people, you know, from the Shepherd Fairies, people like that. Mike out of New Orleans, who has a beautiful place down there. I was just at his gallery a few weeks ago. And it's just like street. I love street artists. Mm-hmm. And I love people who colors to transform a landscape like Mike did in New Orleans, where literally just taking building and communities after Katrina mm-hmm. and changing the way they're seen through art. Yes, yeah, so this is Mike. Who's the artist? So his website is bmike.com, but Brandon B. Mike Odoms. Okay. You know, he's a visual artist out of New Orleans and he has Studio B there and just hands down the greatest gallery I've ever seen. It's across the street from the train station that Plessy v. Ferguson, that Supreme Court case was triggered by. And so it's right by these train tracks that used to separate communities and the walls Mm -hmm. and the entire community just has a new face now. And it's very revolutionary. I think there was literally in the gallery, there was an entire cop car upside down in the gallery. (laughs) Love that. So when you were talking before about just vibrant colors, it brought to mind the work of Carrie James Marshall. Oh, yeah. Who I love his black people are literally black. And there's a feeling sometimes I think that you can't get a lot of expression when you're painting people that darkly, but that's actually not true. And I just love his palette and the way he kind of mixes in one painting of his where people are in a park and they're listening to like, you know, old 70s soul music and the music is pouring out of a radio and they're, you know, there's a family sitting on the grass and there's a guy being pulled on water skis on a boat. And it just reinforces the idea of black people at leisure, which is something that we don't see a lot depicted in art. You know, typically we're engaged in some type of labor you know, especially from the very beginning of classic pieces, like the piece Olympia, where you have the black woman who's the maid in the background carrying flowers. Mm-hmm. It's like we're almost always in art encumbered by labor. Right. And so that's why I felt like Marshall's piece is so powerful, because we're just chilling and relaxing. So Right. Yeah. And B-Mike does that a lot, too, where it's just taking everyday people, right? So people see the humanity of us. And that's art is so beautiful because it allows for us to transform people's perceptions of us. But also it was art in the first place, right? Different forms of media that probably made them criminalize us. Um, if you think of the first film that was ever made, first major motion picture, right? Being racial propaganda, right. the birth of a nation, you know, exactly. we're using art to undo these images as well. Exactly. So what have you learned about yourself from your varied art practice? Oh, wow. I think, I mean, I figure out and discover, or I'm closer to discovering who I am. You know, one thing I accepted now is that I'm a constantly evolving person. So the person who I am today will and should change a few years. I mean, foundational things, I am who I am, right? But I'll still connect and relate to the world as the world changes, you know? So I think writing for me has been something that's taught me so much about myself. In the process of writing my autobiography, 
it's called the knucklehead's guide to escaping the trap was difficult i didn't know it would be so hard to revisit traumatic situations from childhood some things that i never resolved you know to 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 go back into my memories and that really helped me discover who i who i am but also the work that i need to do right? And that reflective piece. And I've done some art through like self-portraits sort of thing that allow me to reflect more on even like just, you know, my facial features because every curve on my face was inherited from different ancestors. And making amends with that, I recently learned that through my DNA test that I'm actually different races, but I'm 20% European. And I never met a white person in my family that I was told was family members. I can go back generations and generations and had never met a white person. So I've actually been using art to connect with that part of my ancestry, but also deal with the honest truth that, well, maybe that, that could have came from rape and exploitation mm-hmm. and, and different things, but I'm, I'm connecting with the um, art of my ancestors in Scotland and, and other places as well. I love that. So I actually listened to a podcast that you did about six months ago, and you were talking about a shortage of teaching artists. And I want to talk a little bit about the concept of an artist who teaches as somehow being some kind of failure, because there's a saying in America, which I loathe, that says those who can't do teach. But actually, whoever said that really, I think, messed us up because artists do and teach. I mean, they do both. I think you're actually in some ways more balanced and more productive if you can share what you know. And and that's one of the things that struck me about the title of your memoir is that it's it's also a self-help book sounding title. You know, you're not just talking about yourself, but you're also saying, hey, this is how I did it. And this can help you in your journey. You want to talk a little bit about just what it means to be a teaching artist and why it's actually not a failure. Right. It's more of a duty, Kathy. I would say to teach as an artist is an obligation because think we as artists wouldn't know what we know if other people didn't stop teach us at some point. Even if you're a self-taught artist, right? You're still learning from somebody. Somebody's going to show you something, different appreciations, different videos. So, and and this was going back to why I said I don't like the, the term artist because in this 21st century capitalistic world, when we think of an artist, we think of this rich millionaire. Right. Has the house in the Hamptons and art sells for millions of dollars and it's collected by other people with houses in the Hamptons. I mean, who doesn't want that lifestyle, right? But I think that has created a landscape where artists and creators feel entitled to that, right? And then feel like they're not a success if they don't have that. Right. And I can say it's actually okay to not want to have that lifestyle. You don't assume that just because a person has that, that they are complete or happy or there are all different ways you can be miserable, just like there are all different ways you can be happy. And it's okay to realize not only do I not fit into that box and I'm not on that path, Mm -hmm. but I don't want to be on that path. My art and my life is about something else. I think it would help if we found a way to communicate how different artistic journeys can be and they don't all have to culminate Mm -hmm. in the same place. Exactly. We we create art for different purposes. You know, sometimes art is for our self-process, right? Processing things. Sometimes, yeah, it's shared with the world and you can monetize it. You can do that things. But I think you can create art for art's sake. You know, and I think in this capitalistic world, we kind of grew far from that because, you know, you do have to pay the bills. Right. And artists are exploited. We just we we are. 
But as a teaching artist, you know, I mean, I was just teaching you last weekend. The, the young people connect when we connect through rhythm. I was teaching drumming. They appreciate it. Feel like they're connecting through their ancestors. And if I'm not sharing that, who are they getting it from? Right. Because people aren't just generous with art and with opportunities. Schools aren't providing it. Communities sometimes are like art deserts sometimes. So right. I think artists really should feel that obligation to teach more as a duty to share it with the next generation and to also honor how they receive their art as well. And it's not viewed as a failed artist because you have to find different ways to survive in this world, right? So you can't make money as a musician, right? When they're paying you a fraction of a penny for a song stream and you can get 10,000 streams and still get $5 right? You can go teach a class for a few hours and it's you'll make just as much as getting 100,000 streams. <laughs> and to not take advantage of that, that's you not diversifying how you use your art, you know? But I, I know sometimes artists, are, our egos, sometimes we just want people to appreciate and hear our art and make the money yeah, from exactly. the appreciation of our art as opposed to empowering young people or other artists with those skills. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a, also a change in the nature of work and how we see work. It used to be we went to a job every day for 50 years and then we retired and we got our gold watch. And now people have so many different income streams and it allows them to explore their creativity and monetize it. I think the downside to that is everybody thinks that you have to do that all the time. Like every creative outlet you have has to be monetized. Otherwise, it doesn't have meaning. You know, and that's also not true. Mm -hmm. So what's your advice? Because our podcast is broadcast inside and out. What's your advice for someone who's now in the system? Mm -hmm. And we ask this of all of our guests who has creative aspirations, but isn't sure how to channel them, what to do. Yeah, I think I've seen people inside do some of the most creative things. My father, while incarcerated, used to send me birthday card that he would make from his pillowcase using that as a canvas and with color pencils and just do different things. Just some of the most intricate art you could find. And that used to motivate me so much. I still remember, I still have lots of those things he created for me. It's beautiful. Yeah. One of my friends, she reached out to me. She's incarcerated in Tennessee. Shout out to you, Octavia, if you hear this, but she sent me something she made from construction paper, folding lots of little sheets of construction paper into a sculpture. And she was able to ship it to me for my birthday. And it was it's still my favorite birthday present in the recent few years. And Octavia herself uh-huh. is an artist who reached out to me. She just reached out to me. I, I'll never forget the day I received her letter at my law firm office. She had seen me on BET or something like while in inside mm-hmm. and she got a family member to get an address of just the ACLU and just reached out. And now we've been corresponding. And another artist who we are working with, actually Project Nakwe, we're working to publish his book. His artist name is Moyo. He's a Buddhist right. living on death row in, in Texas. And he's done art that we've actually displayed in Los Angeles, you know, at our protests, our protests fighting the death penalty or different things. So there was Lawrence who was a bridge for that and the communication. So I would say, people on the inside finding mm-hmm. bridges, but also just not being afraid to just reach out to people with a letter. Old school, right? Just writing a letter mm-hmm. to different folks to share your art and getting it out there and just know that the world is changing and we're fighting to change the world and create a world to where you can come home and the community fully embraces you because we know we still have to, I myself still have to check boxes and it, it's, it's humiliating to, mm-hmm. to not be able to move beyond this mistake that happened literally decades ago at this point and to mm-hmm. not be seen 
is different and capable of growing, but we're fighting to change that. And one of the ways right. we're doing that is through art. So I just encourage all everyone to keep creating art and bearing their souls and, and finding ways to get it out there. Yeah. That's beautiful. I think all of those stories are illustrative of the fact that those human connections will be made from the inside to the outside. You can try to prevent humans from connecting with each other, but ultimately the impulse to do that is so strong that it will win out. And I think that's a beautiful spot to end our podcast. I want to thank you, Amira. It's been really illuminating speaking with you. Thank you, Kathy. And thank you all for doing this podcast, creating these conversations and yeah, centering the arts with healing. You've been listening to an episode of Outside Inside Radio, brought to you by the Prison Arts Collective. Prison Arts Collective is founded on the belief that art is a human right and is dedicated to bringing the transformative power of the arts to people experiencing incarceration. We are based in the School of Art and Design at San Diego State University and have additional chapters at Cal Poly Humboldt and at three CSU campuses, San Bernardino, Fresno, and Fullerton. Prison Arts Collective is a project of California Arts and Corrections, an initiative of the California Arts Council and the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Outside Inside Productions are a way to communicate with our participants and with the wider public through video and other media as an extension of our distance learning project created in response to COVID-19. Thank you for listening and tune in next week for another episode of Outside Inside Radio.